Good morning. Good to see. Uh, I know this isn't a, a well-worn joke, but talking about cross-cultural living, after I've been here a week and I went into Crocodile to buy some tiles, this massive birdie bloke handed me over a load of tiles and called me Duck. <laughs> I didn't have a clue what was going on. I've been adapting for the last six years ever since. It totally freaked me out at the time. Anyway, having come from Essex, there we go. Let's just move that because I'm going to roam a little bit. So, uh, Easter Sunday... Um, yeah, uh, for us, classically, is a time of celebration and joy, and we're talking about new life, and new hope, and new future, and new purpose. But if we were to put it in the context of when these events actually happened, you try and get your head into this a little bit. So the disciples have been walking with Jesus for a few years. They've seen him do some miracles. They've seen him teach some incredibly and profound countercultural stuff. And then he's just been slammed, nailed to a lump of wood, brutally murdered. Now, if we were in that time, I think it's an understatement to say that you'd feel a little bit of pressure. If your leader has been taken, and not just killed, I mean brutally slaughtered. So we're in this zone from the Good Friday to the Sunday where there is just huge pressure. I mean, masses of pressure. So some people messed up, Peter denied him. People are feeling that they were, you know, they, they wimped out, uh, their leader's gone, there's turmoil, it's chaos, there's a sense of darkness over the whole thing. That's the, that's the backdrop as we approach the Easter Sunday. Now, because we tend to be celebratory as Christians through the whole Easter period, I think sometimes we nullify the extreme pressure that people are under. So the Easter story is actually an extreme juxtaposition between darkness and then light smashing in, which I think we just need to remember sometimes. So against the pressure this happens in Luke 24, and every gospel has an account, but I'm going to pick on the Luke 24 one, because I think it's great, it's just brilliant for, uh, what, yeah, for today, some of the thoughts I've been having, that we'll, we'll drop into Matthew a little bit as well, but let me just read this to you. But I, I want you to capture the sense of darkness that was pervading over everyone at that time. I mean, the pressure would have been absolutely immense. They're, they're thinking, do we just scatter? Do we run for our lives? Uh, are we going to try and regroup? I mean, was this all a myth? You know, is, is the whole thing nothing? Because you're bearing in mind, there were loads of gurus walking around at the time who said that they were the Messiah. Loads of people doing false miracles, people coming out with teaching, some people would have been insurrectionists. So there's loads of counter-movements taking place at the time. And of course, we still see that today. Wherever there is a genuine work of God, there'll always be counterfeit. So all this is happening as well. And then we get this. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they prepared and went to the tomb. And you just imagine how they were feeling. I mean, your head is down, isn't it? Your head is going to be down. You're broken. Uh, and bereavement and grief is an understatement, I think. 
they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And now so you're getting a bit of bewilderment started to creep in. What is going on? But when they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. So the light starts to break in. In their fright, I, the Bible is brilliant at understatement sometimes because, I mean, I, I think I'd be, I'm thinking I'm asleep, dreaming one of my weird dreams, or I don't want to move through fear. I mean, I love the Matthew 28 account where it says there is an earthquake, and we start, you know, the, this huge turmoil, this earthquake, and an angel appears in front of the guards. It says there's an earthquake, and an angel came down from heaven and sat on the stone. You know, it's kind of like a, you weren't expecting this, were you, fellas? <laughs> he, says, he says that they, 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 they were like dead men. The guards were like dead men. This is before the women came up, you know. So the preceding, the stone was rolled away by this earthquake, this thunderclap, this massive angel comes down and then just lounges on the stone. Hello, everyone. Weren't expecting that, were you? Amazing. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Verse 5. See, in their fight, the women have bowed down. The men said to him, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified on the third day, be raised again. And then they remembered his words. And when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others. Again, you know, we read this with a slight air of British restraint. When they'd, they'd pondered these things and they returned back and explained what they had seen, I think it would have been more like a... <laughs> things are happening! <laughs> Something's happening! I think it's just, it's just put in a very succinct way, uh, I think. Because I'd be freaking... It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they didn't believe the women. Because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb saying, Petrus Peter, you know, hot-headed Peter. Gets up, runs to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away wondering to himself, what had happened and then it goes into the narrative for the road to Emmaus and suddenly you know the light begins to dawn in people's minds I'll tell you just a very quick thing before I examine this you know I went for a walk with a fellow a few weeks ago and uh, we decided to go for a walk for a cup of coffee uh, just to talk he wasn't a Christian guy I thought I said to him let's just go for a coffee we'll go for a little walk and a talk and as we're walking along it, it, we start to explain I started to explain to him about Jesus and oh, he's a bit like Ah, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's good, good for you. You hear a lot of that from people. Gospel, um, you know, it's good for you, not for me. So we sit down, have a coffee, have a little croissant, to ask me a few more questions, and so I'm being a little bit blunt back. I know it's hard to imagine, <laughs> but I've been a little bit blunt back, and uh, 
suddenly you just start to see this awakening in his eyes. The light begins to shine into his mind. And as we were walking back, um, I said to him, you know I am an evangelist for a living. So I am trying to see you become a Christian. I'm not, I am evangelising you. That is, that is what I'm doing. He said, yeah, I get that. I said, that's what I'm doing. I said, but... I can't persuade you to become a Christian. I can't argue you into heaven. That, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. I can't do that. I can explain it to you, then it's over to you. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I'm giving you over to heaven. She doing what? I said, I'm not going to try and persuade you anymore. I'm giving you to heaven. It's up to you. God will shine his light into you. It's up to you whether you receive it or not. He said, oh. <laughs> and later that night, you could just see this, this face, his face is changing. And later that night, it was about 11 o'clock, so we were staying together away on holiday. He came into, came into my room and he said, I've been reading about how to become a Christian. Can I do it now? It was just amazing. Sometimes you see that with people. And there might be one or two of you here. This road to Emmaus that follows on. You know, God shines his light, but it's up to you to walk with that and receive it. Our job is just to proclaim it, isn't it? So this amazing uh, story here, and I think just to begin with, um, just a few things on this, uh, on the actual resurrection, because over the years, uh, people have tried to undermine this through various different arguments. You remember there was a man called Lee Strobel who wrote a book, The Case for Christ, and his background was as a, a legal expert and a journalist. And he was a committed atheist. So he set out with a few legal experts and journalists to, to write a book to disprove the story of Jesus and the resurrection on the basis of, if we put this in a court of law, would it stand? And he spent one year and nine months examining the claims of Christ, the life of Christ, the historicity and accuracy of the Bible, all that stuff, and, and presented it to himself as if it was being argued in court. And after one year and nine months, he came to the conclusion that if this was to go to court, it would stand. The resurrection would be legally proved in a court of law and became a Christian and is an evangelist to this day. But still people would want to try and undermine the validity of the resurrection. Some people would say, well, the disciples just stole the body. Well, if they'd stolen the body, why did they go on to boldly proclaim the gospel and give their lives for it? You wouldn't give your life for, for a lie, would you? And they were under protracted and long-term persecution. I think all but one of the disciples were put to death in the most horrific of ways. You would have thought after about the third or fourth martyrdom, people would say, well, I think, I think it's game over now, boys. Let's end the exercise. It's getting a little bit painful. So I think the whole body stolen thing is ridiculous. Some people say, well, the Romans stole the body. Well, why would they do that? Because as soon as the movement would start to grow, and it grew explosively, even through the most intense persecutions, you would have thought the Romans would have just produced the body again, wouldn't you? So actually, it's here. This is the corpse. But that didn't happen. 
Some people say, who try and argue against the resurrection, because do you know now that even secular scholars don't argue against the life of Christ? That he existed is established as a historical fact. I think it's only really, you know, an extreme end, uh, hist you know, historians who would say Jesus didn't live. It's pretty much an accepted fact. So what they do is also come up with other theories about the resurrection. So one of them is the swoon theory. That's what they call it, the swoon theory. That actually Jesus didn't really die, he was merely injured and passed out. And then they put him in the tomb for a few days and then he sort of recovered and, and managed an amazing escape. Well, it's ridiculous. I mean, the Romans were experts at killing people. Well, they knew their job and they did it well. So actually when you start, I'm not going to go into big apologetics about this thing today, but I do want to say I think we have to have confidence in the resurrection. And I think we, we shouldn't be ashamed or afraid to proclaim that Jesus is alive. And we see him at work now. And the reason that I personally am a man who believes in the work of the Holy Spirit now is because that's when we see Jesus working now. Not just in people coming to Christ, which is the, probably the most profoundest miracle, but actually intervening in circumstances. When we pray to Jesus, stuff happens. I think I told you once before, I'm sure I mentioned this, that in some of the evangelism I did in South Asia, I was evangelising an Indian family and had the rack of idols up on their shelf. And I said to him, put a picture of Jesus up. We got him a picture of Jesus. I mean, it wasn't a great picture of Jesus. But put a picture of Jesus up next to your Hindu idols and pray, pray to Jesus as well, when we came back the following year, the other idols had gone and it just Jesus was there wherever the other idols gone, only he answered the prayers, well do you think you want to follow him then, you alright <laughs> well you would wouldn't you so he's alive, working now, I mean it's a long term evangelistic strategy, but a year's not bad Jesus is alive now I think we have to have utter confidence in the truth of the resurrection Confidence to proclaim. Confidence that is intervening now in our lives. And I think the resurrection profoundly stops us from thinking that Jesus was just a wise man. Now that's why when we proclaim the gospel, we're not just doing moral reinforcement. Jesus didn't come just to help us be nice people who don't steal the pick and mix from the sweet shop. It's much deeper than that. But you'd be amazed how much gospel preaching is about moral reinforcement. It's not. The, the resurrection of Christ was a profound and decisive proclamation of the destruction of the forces of darkness for all time. Now, that should inform us, I think, just in a minor way, as to how we should be living as a response. And I'm just going to go through some bullet points. I'm not going to labour this today. I, I want the resurrection story to speak for itself and one or two other little bits and pieces. Uh, so just some bullet points really, uh, with a couple of things thrown in. Firstly, you know, our, our King, our Lord, is one of resurrection. I think for us too, that means that we have resurrection DNA. Uh, I, I'm not, I was trying to think of a better way to put this. 
but I couldn't find it. Now, our, our founding story as Christians is, is a Lord and King, King Jesus, who is alive, who is put to death and is alive and rose again. We too carry resurrection DNA with us. That means, for me, that we live our lives looking up. We don't live our lives looking down. It means that we can be beaten up sometimes by life. We can be knocked down, but we're never knocked out. I think the enemy says to us, keep looking down, keep looking down. We have a personal enemy that wants us to do that. But I think Jesus, by the Spirit, is calling us to keep looking up, keep looking up, keep looking up. You know, when I was thinking about this a couple of years ago, I was sitting in an armchair just sort of praying and pondering about the resurrection and a new life and thinking about preaching evangelistically. And I started thinking about bullfighting because I'm a bloke. And I've never even been to a bullfight. So I started, I wouldn't want to go to a bullfight, to be honest. I like animals, I've got chickens and everything. So I'm not that sort of person. So, surprisingly, uh, uh, but I researched it, and do you know, I, I didn't realise just how much the matador stacks the odds in his favour. You're thinking, where's he going with this? Let me tell you, Joe when the matador comes out, he has these guys called banderillos that come out first, and their job is to spear the ball in the back of the neck. And they cut the muscles in the back of the neck, and they're merciless. He's horrible. And through blood loss and slicing the muscles, the ball gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And it goes from having an upright stance to all it can do is look downwards. Then the matador comes out, does a few flourishes, and then runs it down with a sword. Occasionally, the ball gets a lucky strike and it's like ball one, matador zero. But most of the time, the ball has it. I was thinking about I just started thinking about bullfight and I read it up and I thought that's it. That, that, that's what the enemy tries to do to you, you know. It's what he tries to do to me. It's a metaphor. What he tries to do all the time is spear us so that our eyes are down. Yeah, it could be money stress, it could be health, marriage stuff, work pressure sex addiction, abuse of alcohol, your kids, you know, just life, stuff. I don't know about you, but every now and again, stuff crowds in on me. Do you ever have that? Yeah. I sent Dan a, an email this week, or a text said, I, I won't be there Friday morning, just need a bit of space. Because everything was crowded in, busy, been away a few days, lots of demands, stuff happening, but few confrontational meetings. And every now and again I think, I just want to put my feet up and do a bit of painting. <laughs> paint, paint a pink tree, I don't know. <laughs> because life crowds in, doesn't it? It is pressure. And sometimes you need to create that space for yourself so you can remember who it is we follow and lift your gaze up again. And I think what the Holy Spirit's in the business of doing is the spear removal. So that we can lift our eyes up. I think the enemy is saying, look down at the ground, look down at the ground. But the Spirit is saying, look up. Look up to Jesus, you know. We, we follow a resurrected King. 
You know, our, our destiny is secured if we follow him. You know, we were facing hell, now we have heaven. You know, we were, we were facing destruction, now we have life. You know, where you might have felt hopeless, now you can have hope. You know, where you felt you were defeated, you can have victory. And not in an over-triumphalistic way, that's the devoid of reason. You know, you can still feel ill, you can still have a cold, you can have a bad week, even as a Christian. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit calls us. Because I don't, I don't like over-triumphalistic Christian living, because he's unrealistic. He injures people. You know, we are resurrected, you know, we believe in the resurrection, we have resurrection DNA, but sometimes it's okay to say I feel a bit ill. I'm a bit tired. You know, the teaching that says, no you don't, because you, you know, you're healed, is a bit bonkers, in my opinion. I went to a Christian conference once, I was preaching, I had terrible man flu, which is a cut above normal flu. I don't get what I said. He said, it's quite, a, it's quite a toxic thing, science will prove this in due course. There'll be an article that comes out in the New Scientist any day now that says man flu is real. I'm, I'm banking on it, I'll put money on it if I was a betting man. I had man flu. I walked in to preach at a conference and they said, you look a bit ill. And I went, oh, I'm feeling terrible, I've got a temperature. And this person went, the conference organiser said, no you haven't. I said, I have. They said, this is a sickness-free zone. I said, what? He said, my body's not. So I'm ill. He said, no, we, we believe in, the, you know, proclaim your healing. I said to him, I am ill. I just want just let me be ill. I just want to feel sorry for myself. I'm not saying I'm not going to preach. Just let me be ill. I mean, be realistic about it. But through that, lift up your eyes. Redemption is near. Jesus is with you. It's realistic Christian living. It's, it's a deeper sense of hope, not a shallow one that will make you blow up at the end of the day. We have resurrection DNA, so we can live looking up. And the Holy Spirit is into boulder remove, uh, spear removal. I really, really believe that. I think that informs how we live. That every situation could be filled with hope. Including people that we pray for to see come to Christ. I think the resurrection tells us that everyone is winnable. Everyone. Even the people who wind you up the most. They're all winnable. So a little, quick little story. I, um, I was commuting backwards and forwards to work when I lived in Somerset on a bicycle. Got a brand new mountain bike. Lovely mountain bike. Like me cycling. And uh, I, didn't have, I didn't have any lights on it. And I wasn't wearing a helmet. And the winter nights were closing in. And a couple of guys at work told me off. They took me to Halfords at lunchtime. And said, you need to get some lights. Get some reflective gear. Get yourself a proper hat. So they took me out at lunchtime. Spent a small fortune in Halfords. And I looked like a Christmas tree. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, something out of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I was side going, pedals are lit up. Got stuff on my arms. Stuff on my back. Got a helmet all lit up. Got flashing light at the front. Flashing light at the back. Seriously, it's like an alien spacecraft. <laughs> so I'm cruising back home in the dark. And someone pulled out and knocked me off my bike. You couldn't believe it, could you? All these years been driving, <laughs> cycling absolutely safe, I look like a Christmas tree and someone pulled out and, and drove into the side of my bicycle. So as I'm driving, cycling, driving, I'm cycling along, the, the car pulled out and hit me and I heard this cracking sound from my leg. So I thought, oh no, that, you know, this, uh, oh no, that's really going to hurt. And I sort of wobbled along and then I thought, I'm still cycling. That's a bit weird. 
Now, I sort of pulled over, and the car had pulled out of a junction and then to turn right, and then it pulled over by the side of the road. So I, I was all in a bit of shock. So I did a quick U-turn on my bicycle, nearly went under a lorry. So <laughs> I wasn't looking, I was all shocked. And, and this lady was in her car, and she was like not moving behind the steering wheel. You know, just stood there, and so I, I knocked on a window, just put the window, and I went, are you okay? <laughs> she went, no, I'm not. I went, oh, was, okay, let's have a look at your car. When I went to see her car, her bumper and her radiator was all dented in really badly. It was an old car, and I, but I, I looked, my leg's fine. I thought, I know I've got good calf muscles, but that's ridiculous. <laughs> so, you know, I said, keep you put the headlights on my bicycle? I said, oh, bike's fine as well. Anyway, so I was having a little chat with her and so I think the car's a write-off. I said, it's not very good, is it? I said, my bicycle's fine, it's fantastic. I said, I only live down the road, do you want to come back for a cup of tea and blah, blah, blah. And we had a lovely chat and uh, I said, you know, working this Christian ministry up the road and blah, blah. So don't worry about it, it's absolutely fine. See, you don't need to worry about insurance and the police, absolutely fine. It's one of those things. But I had a little chat and made sure she was okay and then she... She didn't go on her way, she had to phone her mum because she couldn't pull the car off. So I just went home. I went home to Karen and I said, you're not going to believe this, but I just, um, someone just uh, drove into me. Karen, you know what Karen said to me? She said, on your new bike? I went, yeah, and I'm fine. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'm fine. So, anyway, uh, the next day I went into work and, and uh, the, one of the people who works there, and Karen was working in the office as well, said, oh, my friend told me an amazing story when she got home last night said she pulled into this bloke and she thought she'd broken his leg. So really pulled into this bloke on a bicycle. But it was amazing, the bloke was absolutely fine and, and her car was trashed. And she said, and the bloke was really, really nice. I thought, I said, really? I think that might have been me. <laughs> and she said, oh, she says my best friend. She's not a Christian. I've been trying to witness to her for years. I thought it was really interesting. Now, I don't know if she became a Christian or not, but I know her car got trashed and my leg was fine, which is brilliant. But just for me, that's, a, that's an example of grace-filled living in response to Jesus who died for us and rose again. Everyone is winnable. You know, I could have I chewed her off, couldn't I? I could have had a right old go. You know, I could have probably called the police but there's something for me about the fact that Jesus died for us, rose again, fills us with his spirit, journeys with us every day. That kind of informs me that we've got to do death to grumpiness, moaning, complaining. Grace-filled living in response to radical grace and radical intervention by God, don't you think? Wouldn't it be amazing if all Christians were known for the character of, you know, that, that complaint is a foreign language, that we're characterised by hope, radical, radical hope. Everyone is winnable. Everything is redeemable. All situations, redeemable. Everything can change for the good. And I believe that the Holy Spirit can intervene in an instant and change everything. Do you?
And are we living that way? I was going to get Carly to come and share a little bit, won't you? Come on down. Come on down. It's like the price is right. <laughs> come and uh, you can grab this. Uh, so uh, this is Carly, everyone. He's married to Andy. <laughs> so you can say good morning back. It's like a game show. <laughs> good morning, Carly. So, um, Carly, tell us, because uh, you've been really poorly. Yeah. Uh, tell us um, just a little bit of background about that. Uh, well, back in January, I went to bed on Friday night, absolutely fine. Woke early hours of Saturday morning in terrible pain, couldn't walk, was really, really ill. Went to the doctors, went straight to the hospital. They couldn't find what was wrong with me. I've had several tests, in and out of hospital. My life altered completely overnight. Couldn't go out, I couldn't walk, couldn't climb the stairs, couldn't get out of bed. I was absolutely, completely changed through illness. It was horrendous. So I think you said to me on well, a couple of days ago, was it nine weeks in and out of hospital now? Yeah, yeah since January, yeah. And Six different hospitals, Nottingham, Sheffield, Chesterfield, several different hospitals. And lots of painkillers and... Yeah, 14 painkillers at 8 o'clock in the morning, 14 painkillers at 12, same again at 6, same again at 10. All the time I was in hospital. Um, as a 36-year-old woman, it's quite disturbing when you're unable to take yourself to walk to the toilet. You have to be taken to the toilet because you're completely debilitated through pain and painkillers. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I couldn't even walk. Um, I spoke to my mum last week. This is only a week ago in Sheffield. I spoke to my mum that morning, and I, I, I rang her and I said, "Mum, I can't do it anymore." I said, "If I could get to the top of this building, I would." throw myself off because I can't, I can't live my life like this, it's not fair on my kids and my husband and everybody else, yeah. it was just, yeah, it was desperate. Pretty bleak. So, um, tell us what's happened, obviously you look a bit different to that now, yeah. so tell us, tell us, uh, tell us, uh, and just tell everyone what, what happened over the last few days. Carl and Dan came round Friday afternoon to my house. Um, they said, can I come and pray and anoint you with some oil? I said, bring it on, sounds great. I was a bit worried though when I saw that there was about that much oil in the bottle because I thought, oh, they're gonna tip it all on me. I'm wearing my best shirt. It was like, just that went through my mind. So we sat and we prayed and um, Carl did anointed me with the oil and and I said on Friday afternoon, I give my life to Christ. You know, I am, I'm giving myself to you. You are the Redeemer. Because that was, that was a new thing that for you, was wasn't it? That was a new thing for me. I felt like the devil was at work trying to drag me down through this illness, through trying to tear my family apart, trying to do evil with my job. It, he was just trying to take me over. And I think when I felt the way I did, the morning I spoke to my mum, that was the devil really at work. He wanted me that day. I'm trying to remember how we framed it on the day, but I think I said something to you like, um, 
have you made Jesus Lord of your life? And yeah. you, I can't remember what you said. It was something like, I never felt that was something I needed yeah, to do. Yeah, I've taken it a bit for granted. I don't say things <laughs> like that because I just yeah. assume he already knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a bit lame, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So then after that, uh, what happened? And we prayed for you some more, didn't yeah. we? And then what, what was happening then as we prayed? I started getting jolts through my body. I was literally sat on the settee. Oh, God, I could feel it. Then this absolute inner heat just came from my toes upwards and I got this really weird feeling like a pins and needles, like a feeling coming back. I could feel a feeling. And as I sat with my hands on my knees, my hands were lifting. It, I just felt like I had to really force them down because I could just feel my hands lifting. And everything changed that very split second. You woke up the next morning feeling... Better than I've ever felt. I'm not just the old me, I'm like a new super me, because I've now got... <laughs> I am! I've got a dad. You know like dads and then there's dads ultra, yeah. so it's like Carly yeah. ultra. Carly ultra! <laughs> yeah, because I've got, you know, I've got Christ in my life and he's... it's everything, you know? And if I'd still got the pain, but Christ, I've got Christ and you could deal with it. But I've, I feel healed. I haven't taken a single tablet. I went to Dan's barbecue yesterday. Three hours I stood. I felt absolutely fine. I couldn't stand for 10 minutes a week ago. I couldn't even stand up. Wow. So if you were going to say to anything to... I'm not asked to tell, I was going to ask you this question, but if you're going to say a word to people here about prayer or the power of God today what would you I think you'd have something to say about that wouldn't you oh yeah yeah you've got you've just got you've got to have Christ in your life and give yourself fully and it's just a miracle the change you will never look back my life now will never thankfully be the same as what it was because I've now got something that I will always have and my children, and my husband, and my extended family, they all see it in me now. It's just different. It's amazing. Let's give Carly a clap, shall we? It's quite a big thing to say. I want to pray for you. Father, thank you for Carly, and uh, we pray for her and Andy, Lord God, and the kids. Put your spirit around them, protect them, set your guard about them, Father, and uh, pray you continue to work in her body and in her spirit, Father, and uh, bring her back to complete wholeness. And uh, you've got to continue to do what you're doing, Father. Thank you for your shalom, your wholeness and peace, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Carly. So I, I thought that would be a better illustration of me actually saying it theoretically. All situations are redeemable. Now, of course, there's implications there because some people will be carrying medical conditions that they've not been healed from yet. Some of us will carry stuff for a long time. You know, some of us battle with things all our lives. You know, there's, there's one or two things that I'm carrying health-wise from a bad infection a couple of years ago that still haven't cleared up. And then you can pray for one person and they're healed. God is sovereign. So we celebrate that Jesus is alive and all situations are redeemable. The fact that when we pray, not everyone's healed doesn't stop us from praying and believing, does it? And I said to someone, and they said, did you, they said to me, did you believe when you went round there that God was going to do something? 
Every time I pray. Because every situation is redeemable. If God doesn't answer a prayer like that, am I wounded or defeated? No. Because I keep lifting my eyes up. Every situation is redeemable. If I could characterise it like this, we should be living, excuse the use of imperatives, but we should be living as though we are the people of the why not? Not the but what if? What if? What if this happens? And what if we do that? And what if we do this and that goes wrong? Or what if we do that and that upsets people? That as long as we are biblical and we are focusing our attention on the resurrected Lord Jesus, we should be living as we are the people of the what if. I think this means death to cynicism. We are not as Christians to be characterised by cynicism or pessimism. We should be characterised as the people of optimistic hope. Joy. And that means more potential for mistakes. More potential to take risks. But we live with optimistic hope and joy. And when, thing goes, when stuff goes wrong, we don't think, well, we're not going to do that again. We dust ourselves off. And we pick ourselves up because we're the people of the resurrection. We think, that's great, let's have another go. When someone has an idea for a ministry and it doesn't work out, we don't sit there saying, I told you, saying, I knew that wouldn't work. We say, we had a go, that's brilliant. That's brilliant because we're the people of the resurrection. Optimistic hope. I think that means that our language is characterised by hope and the resurrection. Our, our lives are characterised by hope. Our demeanour is characterised by hope. And optimism. Even in the, most, in the face of extreme antagonism. I'll finish with this. Because uh, we have to boil this down, not just in the, the big stuff, which is like, that is amazing. And I, I would urge you to pray for that family. And pray for each other, that God continues to grace us in such a way. Because the enemy would love to snatch that out from underneath us, wouldn't he? But we have to boil this down to the nitty gritty. This to me is an example of living with hope and, and this, uh, that everything is redeemable and everyone is winnable in the mundane ordinariness of life. When I lived in Somerset, I had Mr Grumpy from Grumpy Planet as a neighbour. Mr Grumpy. I mean, everything was grumpy. It, I mean, I, I used to walk out my front door and see him and feel seriously depressed. I mean, he was grumpy and moaned at me about everything. And I decided I built a gazebo in my back garden to grow some roses up and stuff. And, I mean, you would have thought I'd try to build the Eiffel Tower. And the complaints I got, so I went away on a work trip and I came back and came had a letter through the door and he's moaning, he's really cross and he's, he, you know, and when you hear that about a neighbour, you get reactions, don't you? Like, I, I really hope I never see him, because that's a bit scary. Through to, that's really annoying, it's just a gazebo, I'm going, what's that? But I thought, I've got, to, I've got to bite the bullet on this one. So, because uh, it's stressed count out of it. So I just went round and I knocked on his door and the door opened and as soon as he opened the door, he's at me, he's like a Rottweiler. Like a rabid Rottweiler. I mean, he's really doing one. I mean, horrible, you know. Um, so I just thought, I'd stay calm. Stay calm, Beachy, stay calm. Stay calm, son. 
And then when he came to the end of his words, we sort of ran out of breath. I looked at him, I, I went up to him, I put my hand on his shoulder, I went, you doing all right? How are you doing inside? You okay? And he went, oh, no, I'm having a terrible time. <laughs> so it's a terrible time. He said, I've got ill health and my wife's in the hospital. And I said, well, let's talk about the gazebo first. It's, it's, it's fence height, I'm growing roses up it. It looked beautiful from your bedroom window. I said, that's that. I said, but why don't we just have a cup of tea? I said, it sounds like you're having a really tough time. Why don't you just let's have a cup of tea and a bit of fruitcake? Let's have a chat. So I'd love to get to know you more. Immediately diffused. Immediately diffused. You have choices every day. Didn't come to Christ or anything, as far as I know. We moved. But but you have a choice every day to be a person of hope whose eyes are lifted up optimistic grace-filled kind that is not a weak word kind full of belief that all situations can be different so as I pondered on the resurrection yesterday to think about today that's what I think the Lord gave me as a word for our church to be known for our kindness, our hope, our optimism. Everyone is redeemable, everyone is winnable. All situations will be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're seeing it in front of us. From Andrew, from Carly, and there will be others of you. As we step out in faith, God will meet us. As we stay true to his word, we seek to lead godly lives and be a blessing to our community. We want people to come in here and find the most outrageous, generous, hope-filled, optimistic bunch of people that exist in Chesterfield. We blow their minds. Because we live with our eyes looking up. Death to pessimism. Remember that at church vision meetings? <laughs> Death to cynicism. Optimistic hope.